the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, April 5th. On this edition of Wednesday's Mini Break podcast episodes, we are going to offer part two of our breakdown of the first third of the 2023 ATP and WTA season. Of course, if you missed us handing out our awards, the best players, the most improved players, the rising stocks of the first third of the season, all you have to do is scroll down in your mini break podcast feed. You can hear myself and Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane break down each and every aspect of the first third of the year, at least all the positives from the first third. But of course, there are many questions that have emerged from the first three months of play as well, not just from the tennis we have seen unfold, but of course, what can we expect with the coming clay court months on the schedule? We want to focus on those aspects on today's edition of our first third review. And joining me on the podcast to break it all down once again is a man you know at this point. I'll just say it, not essentially. He is a co-host of this mini break podcast, an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and tennis channel. If you weren't reading his work from the grounds of Miami during the Sunshine Swing, simply put, you just weren't doing it right. It's our dear friend joining us once again, returning champion of returning champions, David Kane. DK, welcome back. It's been a long 24 hours without your presence by my side. I missed you. Did you miss me? Charmed, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, if you weren't reading my work in Miami, you were only getting half the story. It's a a drag race untucked reference for my three gay (laughs) listeners in in, in the field. <laughs> it's good. You're coming in hot. That's what I like. Back to back podcast. We've got the rhythm flowing. It only took me one intro. Let the record show. This time to get things right. And again, it's our first third review, part two. We want to focus on the questions, dare I say, the disappointments. We do want to talk about some of the surprises. And then we're going to end today's show with a look at my top 10 coming out of the first third of the season, not the rankings top 10s. If you want the official metrics, you can turn there. But my vibes from the first third of the season. This is how I view the 10 best players in the world right now. And then, of course, we're going to redraft our teams. Again, an exercise we performed in late December of last year. We drafted players heading into this season. Some of the people we thought would either make dramatic rises in the rankings would perhaps define the first third of the year. We're going to make some amendments to our team's adjustments. We're also going to take stock of who won the first third of the season. But spoiler alert, the answer is is me. Um, With all of that in mind, again, jam-packed show for all of you listeners. But as I alluded to in the intro, this is one of two podcasts we've got for all of you today. I am well aware there are five tour-level events on the calendar this week. The Sunshine Swing may be over. The tennis world, it never rests. I want to start breaking down the action in Charleston. We have the return of Svitolina, a big week for North Carolina State freshman Diana Schneider, and so much more. You've got action in Estoril, Ben Shelton, Clay Court Davis. You've got Clay in Houston as well. Christian Garin, the dark horse of dark horses, in my opinion, entering this 2023 clay court stretch. There's a lot of meat on that bone, and we're going to 
discuss all of that in part two of today's mini break podcast episodes with our dear friend from Tennis Point, Nate Walrith. But again, first third review, that's the subject of this episode. A shout out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point for their support of this show, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that established, let's just get right into it, DK. Opening tangent for today's show. There was a – because this is the biggest storylines, results, and controversies. And I think there was a mini controversy that some tennis fans may not be aware of early today here, Wednesday, April 5th. We got the news on social media. Perhaps some of you have seen the Twitter clip going around. I assume this is why, DK, you're wearing the shirt that you wore to today's podcast because we saw a clip of a bunch of players naming their favorite cartoons growing up. And it was a really fun clip recorded at the Miami Open. And, you know, it's kind of emblematic. Maybe this clip appealed to me particularly because the players in their primes, the players who are now being interviewed, I love you, DK. This is not meant as as a slight at you. A lot of them are my age. Like, they grew up watching the same cartoons as I did. If you're a little bit older than me, I'm buoyed by the fact that I had an older brother, so I was watching his cartoons maybe when I shouldn't have been. DK, it's the most important question I'm going to ask you today. Your favorite cartoon, who was the winner of the cartoon video? First of all, I have news for you. SpongeBob has been on TV for over 20 years. So we all grew up watching SpongeBob. I think we all watch SpongeBob to reference my iCarly victorious. I think we all sing t-shirt now available on Quentin Reviews uh, (laughs) merchandise store. But what was my favorite? I mean, I I did like a little, um, I posted it on Twitter, your your ideal Saturday morning cartoon budget. If you only have $20 to spend, (laughs) SpongeBob SquarePants coming in at a premium deal of only $4. The top-ranked shows were at $5. I mean, SpongeBob is the obvious. I mean, seasons one through three before the movie came out in 2004, just classic, pristine uh, cartoons. It, It did hurt my heart a little bit to think of some of those slightly younger players who are watching maybe past prime spongebob just because it's been on and on and on <laughs> i don't know what seasons they're referring to or if they're referring to peak spongebob or slightly and then we don't know if they're watching it dubbed or with subtitles i have a lot of follow-up questions as to how they're consuming their bob but um i mean there's there's spongebob there's hey arnold there's fairly odd parents which is a, a show that's very close to my and my my other half victoria Chiesa's heart the, the wanda to my cosmo uh, i do love an as told by ginger it is just Classic slice of life uh, uh, programming, cartoon programming available on Paramount Plus. I think, yeah, I mean, I I still watch a lot of cartoons. I got to be honest. So this this was right in my wheelhouse. This video, courtesy of the uh, U.S. Open Twitter. So I saw the menu of options you offered with the cartoon budget. It makes sense. Avatar for people my age was a five dollar show. There's no doubt about it. I was furious. Batman, the animated series, Superman, the animated series, Justice League. None of those got shout outs on your map. I didn't see any Dragon Ball Z. Shout out to Matteo Berrettini for the call there. Hey, Arnold fits Daniil Medvedev like a hand oh my in God. a glove. Like, Doesn't it explain everything? It, about Daniel? He's like, it he is... walked up to people, don't hit me, I'll hit me. And he like did the bit from Hey Arnold. Like... That it, it just made like I've never seen a video make more sense from a tennis Twitter account than this one. And it was just so revealing. Like Layla Fernandez going into her fur if I was to describe Phineas and Ferb as a human, it would be Layla Fernandez. So like again, fits perfectly. 
Tom and Jerry was alive from Sabalenka. She was watching Family Guy and South Park probably when she was seven. And, See, like, that was – I was surprised there wasn't any mysterious cartoons. But it actually was, like, insight into, okay, I now know something about you. Tom and Jerry felt like a very, like, post-Soviet, like, what? What's so, what is this, like – it's, it feels like you don't have access to the wave of cartoons if you're yeah, watching. What is Tom this like Jerry. bootleg channel that like is showing like you know <laughs> and then you're washed out road clips of and you're Yeah, meet me. Yeah, it felt very out of out of place because Sakari. There were a few in a row that dropped that I was like, really, Tom and Johnny. Like, yeah. I was like, that was past even my prime. I, I was seeing a little bit on, <laughs> on Cartoon Network back when they were still airing cartoons on that yeah. on that channel. But um, yeah, I, I I had my little budget. I managed to come up with one, two, three, four, five, six shows. So I have a okay. I have a full Saturday morning of Fairly Odd Parents, Hey Arnold, SpongeBob, As Told by Ginger, The Wild Thornberries, an oldie but a goodie, and finally. Chalk Zone, which is a good sure. a good amount of absurdity, starring also uh, voice acting by Cree Summer. Cree Summer, Tara Strong, all of your favorite voice voices from growing up, they probably voiced one of those characters. So always so, good to know. Family Guy South Park excluded because that's a different genre. Me, my brothers, my dad. We've got Justice League, Superman, Batman, the animated series memorized. Get it. You're straight. No. <laughs> <laughs> Get off the stage. No. You know the other one? That low-key and oh, – well, there's two more that my buddies and I in college would always make fun of. I'm curious if the cultural impact was as significant as I might have thought, and then I promise we're going to get to tennis listeners. Courage the Cowardly Dog. Stop. That was like the horror show cartoon, and was that mainstream or was I the only one watching it? Because oh, it was no. it was weird, but oh my god, was it just fascinating. Like the old lady, the old man. It was so interesting. So absurd. Courage the Cowardly Dog slaps to this day. Return the slab, I tell you. Return the slab. (laughs) Yeah. Well said. I think Rick and Morty is one that nowadays is obviously on the list. But again, I think that's more in the South Park family guy department. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good cartoons you could throw out there. I'm blanking on the one I was going to name. It'll come to me at some point when I think harder because now there are so many different cartoons going through my head. But yeah, I feel – oh, here's the other one. And this you might be a little too old for. But my buddies and I, like if we were really stupid, and there may have been some added things in the air that made us giggle at this. But you know like code, – you know Codename Kids Next Door? I do. do I, know, I, like, I, it felt too serious for it? me. But That's what I'm saying. Do you know like number one in the end turned out to be like a leukemia patient? And it oh was like – oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. I was like, what? And it was like all a dream or like he's going to the kids next door upstairs. It got really serious at the end. That said, in the early days, there's – I think it's number three who's the girl who wears the too long green shirt who like yes. plays yes. the dumb <laughs> character. And there's like the – they have to, what is the password? And they're trying to get off the thing. And she's like, la, 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 da, 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 da. And they're like trying to put in the ice cream party. And she's like, you like ice cream too? And it's like, number one, number one's like, number three. And then you just like, again, the words we would use after that. Anyways. Number um, five, voiced by Cree Summer. Yeah. There you go. Uh, my buddy would be like, oh, I'm number four. Like, oh, I'm here to fight. Let's get into the little rough here. And then, you know, I'd always do that. Yeah, a lot, a lot of lore in Codename Kids Next Door. Yeah, I just think the three whistles. Uh, what was it? It was rainbow monkeys, rainbow. That's like one of those things that sticks in your head. Anyways, we've done 11 minutes on cartoons. That's probably enough. Let's get into our second half. I mean, any final cartoon thoughts? I suppose. No, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing the delightful children from down the lane uh, over in uh, the ATP and WTA. 
I truthfully codename Kids Next Door. There was a dentist who was portrayed as like a villain in one of the episodes, and they're like interrogating him with the dental <laughs> freaking tools. It's so funny in retrospect. And they like the first question they ask him is it like is it okay to chew gum? Like, does gum actually help your teeth? And he's like, oh, the science is unclear. But And he, like, gives, like, a really serious answer. It's so funny in retrospect. Anyways, this is what I did with my childhood. That's why we are where we are now. And where we are now is done with the first third of the season. So let's flip gears here, lock in, talk about the biggest question marks, disappointments from the first third. That's where I want to start. Let's start on the WTA side of things because, again, I think a lot of the questions and disappointments are injury-related. And... I guess, you know, there's a long list of players you could start with, but let's start with the tier of players who during this COVID era, you know, 2020 to 2022, kind of made a run and kind of made the most of their prime, found themselves inside the top 10. And, you know, whether the one who's playing right now is Anjabur, right? Like she is now back on court, back in action. You have Annette Conteve who right now, can you guess what Conteve is ranked, DK? Oh boy. Well, she just lost her Doha and St. Petersburg points from last February and she did basically nothing else after that. So I'm guessing 88, 90. She's currently 69th in the WTA ranking. Give it a week. And and it's like, again, it's Jabur, it's Conteve, the Mukovas of the world who've all been a little bit injured, who are all a little bit further down the rankings. Now, Jabur's still up in the rankings, but she has so many points to defend over the I next know. two months. How many points, like, Alex? No, exactly. There's like a world where she could go from six to 26 in the span of two months. Now, the thing is, she actually has nothing to open, uh, nothing to defend at Roland Garros, which is like a no. quietly yeah. a low-hanging fruit for her. And assuming with Wimbledon now... And she's not defending anything at Wimbledon. Yeah, and with Wimbledon now uh, probably going to be able to offer points this year. Exactly. Those are free points for her to pick up. But still, I think that's the biggest question mark, right? It's like that tier of players, the Jabers, the Mukovas, the Conteves. If you want to throw Sakari in there, fine. Like Muguruza obviously announcing she's out through the clay and grass court season. You'd exclude her from this group. But like – Barty and Osaka, we know we're not going to see Barty. We're probably not going to see Osaka this season either. I think that group is the biggest question mark. Is that fair? That it's it's almost like, what what do we do with them? Like, is their window already closed? Okay, well, that there's a few groups there. I mean, there's yeah, sure. I, I, Mukova, I would group with your Von Drusova's players who are on their way back. So I would, okay. so, and they're not ones who were top 10, and they're not ones who really had great 2022s. So I would put Whoa. them on to the side. But they're not top 10s, but Mukova made a slam semifinal. Von Drusova made a final. Like, I don't think it's... Right, but she did it before I started wearing hats, so you could (laughs) really... It was a while ago. I was not... I was hatless back in 2021. Okay. I can see. Fairly well-framed. Carry on. This has been a long time. And then... But I would also... Then I would take the trio of Jabor, Sakari, and Kudermetova. And the reason why I grouped them together is because in Miami, they all lost their opening round, like, within an hour of one another. And... Got to be honest, it felt a little poetic because it just seemed like as Rabakina and Sabalenka are rising, some of these players who perhaps took advantage of the fact that, you know, more consistently powerful players were having issues with consistency, injury, whatever, you know, they filled in that gap. And we're starting to see, you know, what 
these players are really made of. I mean, I think for Javor, injured or not, this was always going to be a difficult follow-up year. I mean, we've seen players, I've you know, discussed the, the Vera's Von Reva conundrum, a player who peaks, makes back-to-back Grand Slam finals, doesn't break through, and for Javor had a really brutal end to her year in Fort Worth, you know, effectively choked her match to Arena Sabalenka, only needed to win a set or two to beat, you know, to make the semifinals uh, and knock Sabalenka out of Fort Worth. She doesn't do it, loses in straight sets to Sakari. You know, this also, I mean, I don't want to say it, you know, I'm not, certainly I think she was injured, but I think the fact that, you know, the fact that she took it during the Middle East swing where there probably would have been a lot of pressure on her to perform, you know, in front of her home fans, it felt a little bit like the the scheduling lined up there to maybe I'll just take this time to, you know, heal myself rather than rush into something where I'm not feeling hundred percent. I'll be under a lot of pressure to perform. So, I mean, there's her, there's Sakari who did have to, to be fair, did have a very good Indian Wells, maybe better than she should have, you know, <laughs> like there, things kind of broke her way. And then you know, obviously she ran into Sabalenka in the semis and then Kudermatova, another player who was, you know, whereas where, Jabor performed well at slams and Sakari performed pretty well at bigger tournaments. Kudermatova had kind of collected this, you know, sort of middling resume and made a top 10 career out of it. But now we're seeing, you know, the difficulties in trying to back that up. So I think, you know, as we loud, you know, this sort of burgeoning big four, big six within the WTA circuit, those players are not on that list for me. So how they compete with that upper echelon is really a big question. And then finally, Osaka and Muguruza, I think those are the quote unquote stars that the Guardian was referring to when they were claiming that the WTA was missing star power. Um, obviously, Osaka is a star. I mean, I think Serena, Maria Sharapova set the bar so high that I don't really consider them in that league necessarily. Osaka was probably certainly getting close to it, but she hasn't really been a factor on tour in a while now, basically since she was, you know, number, you know, getting to number one at the, the middle of last uh, 2021, again, hatless era. So oh. it's again, <laughs> long time has passed. So, I mean, I think those are three groups uh, to, to look at in the next couple of months to a year. I think obviously Osaka Muguru is probably more like next year. See so what, see what happens and you know, what, how Jabor, Sakari and Kudermatova respond over the next couple of weeks, all can perform pretty well on clay. It will be interesting to how they compete against, you know, and how, you know, the hardcore performers um, back up their first three months. Well, it's just amazing that this group of players who, again, should be in their prime, 26 to to 30, right? You could even throw in bench inches. You can throw in, again, the Sakaris, the Jabers, the Garcias of the world, and, like, it's because if I would have told you this in January 2020, you would have laughed at me. But all these years later, it's like, all right, the best of this group is Jessica Pagula. And it's not even a question mark anymore. The consistency. Oh, I would have laughed and Yeah, laughed exactly. And but laughed. like she has put together a better 15 months than any of those players from a Correct. consistency standpoint, yeah. from, again, a big result standpoint. And does she have the definitive title? No. She doesn't have the Conteve ending to 2021 run. She doesn't have the two slam finals that Shabur has. But, again, start to finish, she has been better than all. Uh, she doesn't have the Cincinnati title of the Garcia. But start to finish, she has been better than all of oh. those players. And it's just like – it's fascinating to me because, again, we've had this conversation a million times. We had it in part one. We're not going to rehash it now. Sviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina, and in our case, we agree, Krejcikova. Like, that's that's the top four. That's who everything runs through. And, again, Rabakina, Sabalenka, you could consider them a tier younger than the group of players we've been talking about. I certainly think in the case of Iga Sviantek, she's at least one full generation younger than the group of players we're talking about. And, of course, right. you've seen the rise of 
people like Coco Goff, who's been a perennial top eight player, and she's probably put together a more consistent uh, consistent 15 months than any of those players we've mentioned. You see players like Chin Wen and Potapova continuing to have more success at higher level events. Like, I don't want to say the window's closed, because if I told you, I don't know, like... Say it. Well, I'm just trying to think which of those players is most likely to win a slam this year. Like, uh, of that group of not, of not Krechikova, if you if I took out Sviantek, Krechikova, Sabalenka, and Rabakina, for some reason, none of them are in the field at the French Open. Who's the favorite? I think that's when you go back to this sort of pre-2022, 2023 era, and you go, like, start looking in the 50s and the 60s, because it seems yeah. like, you know, who is the the Emirato Kanu of the moment? I mean, sure. I think that was the problem before the, this group came in, was that there, it didn't feel safe to rely on your top 20, top 25 girls, because it just seemed like they were not in a stable, steady place, you know, in terms of their consistency and, you know, mm-hmm. didn't, we're playing with too much pressure at these big tournaments. And so, you know, that, that left room for a, a Krejkova, a Raducanu to kind of sneak through the field and, and, and win that slam. So it, I, I mean, to, to pick without those four, I wouldn't pick Jabor, Sakari or Kudermatova. I would, yeah, I would give like, I would, it would be much more likely to say Donna Vekic, Blitz yeah. is the field Which at Wimbledon. Name, like that's sure. like a huge like that would make sense to me if you if you woke me up, you know, July 17th and said Donovekic won Wimbledon, that would be less surprising to me than Maria Sakari is like a French yeah. Open champion. Like that would be wild. And or, even though Sakari's ranked much higher. And I think that so for me, that's question number one on the women's side. Question number two, and I think this gets to your or option there, and it's not just Chin Wen, who I think has to be on the top of this list in like question marks you have moving forward, is is Chin Wen gonna have her breakthrough moment here in 2023? And I know injuries again have slowed her down. And that's the issue, is so many of the biggest question marks relating to the WTA tour have to do with injuries through the first third. But like a Chin Wen. What about Alayla Fernandez, who we've seen in the quarterfinals of the French Open before? Like, what if she regains her form? Or, you know, again, Radicanu on the clay feels a little bit less likely. But again, that's the question. Like, that's question number two, right? Is it's okay if there's this hegemony at the top? Is there anyone capable of breaking through? Well, question number one, you look to the players in their primes right now. And some players we didn't mention in that group, the Ostapenkos of the world, the Keys of the world, who we know can get hot. Have we seen enough from them from a sustained course of period that you feel like they could break into that top-tier caliber? I think we both agree the consensus following that first third of the season is no, we have not. The next group of players you'd look to are the young stars. And like of that group, Chin Wen, Radicanu, Fernandez, Potapova, Kostyuk probably belongs in that conversation with that tier of group. Again, it's a wide spectrum there, but from the rankings perspective, the accomplishments, uh, accomplishments to date perspective, let's say Anisimova gets healthy, she probably belongs in that group. Like, who of that? Are, a, do you have a question mark about that tier? Do you think anyone in that group is capable of making another leap forward here this season? I mean, it's funny to refer to Potapova, Jung. And even Fernandez is sort of like a younger generation when they are, in fact, the same age, if not a little older in Potapova's case than Shantek, who is sure. only, That's only very 21. true. And Goff. Goff is 18. Yeah, Goff. It's like, yeah, but, it, but it's like, no, nah, but they're kind of on their own, right? Because we know yeah. they're not leaving the top 12 anytime soon. If I had, I think, yeah, I think based on 
weaponry and who is like the most built to win a slam, you'd kind of have to say Jung Chin Wen. Um, not by much, because I still feel like that that's, that would almost make too much sense. You know, like that you would almost look for, you know, gosh, even like an Alexandrova to come out of nowhere. Like it just feels like that's, that's sort of the do what the binary that we still find ourselves in the WTA tour where there's, you know, the established favorites or complete shock. There's really nothing in between. I mean, I think we've seen some good stuff from Aliona Stepenko, but something about her vibe just in the last year or so just makes me think that she's content to be, you know, a, a top 25 player, someone who can, you know, have her runs, but I don't think she's planning to peak, you know, at these slams necessarily. I mean, she'll say she's had injuries, illnesses, you know, 12 day, you know, ear blockage, but yeah. I don't know. I just, based on the way that she conducts herself, I just, I question whether there's, whether that's something we can really expect at least this year. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Jung Chin Wen barring, you know, the issues on the forehand a little bit, little issues a little bit on the serve. I think she's just the most primed and, and would have the least like sort of outward technical flaws that would keep her from making that leap into the into the next year. Nine and six overall this season. She's fourth in hold percentage amongst top 50 players, holding serve 79.5% of the time. Yeah, and the weaponry is just so evident. And again, didn't play Indian Wells. You look at who the losses are to this year. Azarenka, which was two and five. She uh, two and five to Azarenka. Retired after losing a seven-six first set to Kvitova. Four and four to Para. Six-four in the third to Samsonova in the Abu Dhabi semifinals. Six-three in the third the next week to Sakari. Uh, four and six to Potapova in Miami in a match she led four-one in the second set. Yeah, and and none and of those losses. None of those losses are horrible. No, and avenge the loss to Samsonova, which was starting to become kind of a bugbear for her that she wasn't able to get that rival, yeah. you know, uh, in the end and got her this time and down 3-0, I'm pretty sure, in the third set there. I think that was the last time I checked that score. And then I saw that Jung Chinwen was on her way to press after having won six games in a row. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we would also be giving a lot of ups right now to Bianca Andreescu had she not, sure. you know, injured herself. I think that was that's one where you think she is trending up versus even a, a Fernandez who certainly compared to a Raducanu just was really starting to get the swagger back, getting the chakras aligned and to be injured again is just really unfortunate because, you know, she is to the extent that we are quote unquote missing stars. Like Bianca Andreescu is a star. Like, you know, Naomi Osaka was a reluctant star. You know, I think Garbini Muguruza was sort of an uncomfortable star as well. I don't think either of those players were really that comfortable. Even Simona Halep, not super comfortable in the limelight. The limelight is the least of Andreescu's problems. It's, it's everything else that's really, you know, conspired to keep her from being, you know, at the top of the game. Yeah, very well said. I think that's one of the biggest disappointments, her getting injured in Miami right when it did seem like she had found her fitness and, you know, again, found her level. And, you know, again, disappointments, question marks, topics, in my opinion, that bleed over into one another. So as you look at this first third, I know I offered you some options, but what are some question marks, maybe some players who disappointed or thing you know as you reflect is there anyone else you would throw on the on the women's side of things i can give you a list if you want to hear it well i mean speaking of stars i mean i'm bummed that i'm, I'm i mean she's having a good week this week but i've been bummed that palabados has been so snake bitten it seemed like she was really having a solid start to the year gets injured can't, can't play australia you know has had some tough draws was so close to beating Rabakina in miami but thankfully appears to have you know taken that loss in stride and you know got a really tight close win over fernandez today which is sort of a good litmus test to how either of those are doing. I feel like with more confidence, Layla wins that kind of a match five and six over at Bedosa. But I think Bedosa's just got that 
slight bit of an ascendancy on her. And it's it's a bummer also that she's defending points this week that, you know, she's finally having a good week and she can't really move up the rankings, Bedosa, but she'll have a lot of opportunities basically after Stuttgart to to move back up again. So hopefully she can take this form through a Roland Garros was, you know, has been talking a good game about feeling confident back on the clay, wherever this all started for in 2021 beats Barty in Charleston and it really kickstarts her career. So hopefully things start again. I mean, cause she was you know, like, talking about how she was, you know, in break points and had so many, you know, inspired so many people with her story of mental health. And mm-hmm. you could tell based on the amount of footage and the kind of coverage they got at Bedosa on Netflix, that they were really teeing her up to be the star of the show. And the fact that she really tailed off right after Madrid last year was sort of a, a, a big, uh, a, pro- a producerial kneecap to that, to that, uh, to that features, unfortunately. So hopefully she's able to turn that around because that's, you know, of your Contavites, Jabor, Sakaris, you know, 2021 favorites. I think that's the one I think has the most long-term potential and the least technical hiccups. All right. We'll rapid fire through my list then. Anisimova, two and six. I know injuries, other things, but she should be a top 25 player. I mean, she should. Yeah. She isn't. You know, it just feels like it's a bummer because it feels like there's always something, you know, it's not too dissimilarly to Andreescu that always seems to be something kind of holding her back, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Boshkova, just given all the momentum she had, I figured summer hardcourt swing, she'd get one big result under her belt, 4 and 8 to start the season. Again, it's a mini disappointment, but it, it was a little disappointing. I mean, look, I love Marie Boshkova and I, I wish, wish nothing but the best for her, but I don't necessarily have my expectations ever that high for her. So I don't, it's hard for me to say that she disappointed. She certainly has been quiet the last couple sure. of weeks. There really hasn't been like a breakout or signature results, but um, hopefully she's, you know, bearing up for another good run on the grass. That was really where she made her hay last year. Last one for me, Kasakina, five and eight to start the year. Just again, had so much momentum coming off of 2022 and you knew there'd be a little regression. It just didn't feel like top 10 was sustainable, particularly given all the players with all the weaponry they were bringing coming up the rankings. But again, no one is happier to turn to the clay court season than her. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bummer because she obviously has a great story is seemingly quite happy off the court, you know, was in Miami with, with Natalia Zabiaco. The two of them are collaborating on their, their vlog together and, you know, bringing their message to a really nice global audience, which is not always the case typically in a country like Russia or even Spain or France, those uh, players can be quite insulated because they have enough of a, you know, party around them that they don't necessarily have to communicate that much in English. So the fact that the they're releasing these blogs with English subtitles is really a great insight into that team. Unfortunately, yeah, a prime example of someone who's just going to get clobbered by your Sabalenka's, Rabakina's, Krejcova's, even a Shvantec's, just players who have that much more firepower than her. And you have to think that that's something that she's carrying in the back of her head on top of feeling like she has to defend everything on top of feeling like she has to prove herself, you know, after having, you know, opened her heart up to everybody and I'm sure all the pressures from home, there's a lot going on with, with Dasha, unfortunately. So that's, yeah, it's a bummer. And I don't, I don't really know how she kind of shakes out of it. She's, she's a player who's had high highs and then, you know, gone away for a year or two. And that might be where we're, where we're at right now. Yeah, no, it's definitely something to watch as we transition to the clay court season. That's why, again, she got a really important first win over Madison Brangle in Charleston. Let's switch over to the men's side of things. Again, I presented you a menu of options in terms of question marks, disappointments. I'll let you lead us here. What's your biggest question mark or disappointment coming out of the first third of the men's season? I mean, Casper Rude, obviously. <laughs> I mean, like that's been such a that's been such a disappointment. I mean, I was looking for him to, you know, finally have a really good Australian Open. It just felt like, you know, this was 
all teed up for him to even make a potential run for number one with, you know, Novak playing the schedule, the limited schedule that he has with Alcaraz starting the year injured. It felt like we were going to potentially have, you know, either a slamless number one or maybe even what Rude could do in Australia. We didn't know. And he really, and I think, I think he finally admitted this week that it was a mistake to play that EXO uh, tour with Rafa Nadal. I mean, as, as, as much as it must have satisfied him from like a childhood idol perspective, the fact that he didn't take the time that he surely needed to refresh, reset, have a proper preseason, hit the ground running in Australia. Maybe he's just getting things together now. One match today from a set down, you know, hopefully, you know, he's back on clay, a little bit like Bedosa, like someone who started their reign on clay, was able to transition to the hard court, sometimes struggled to come back to the clay as he did last last spring. So it has some some points to gain, you know, whether it's in Monte Carlo or Madrid before he really started to kick things into gear in Rome. So, I mean, just the way that he's been losing these matches, just not closing, playing some good points, but not always executing in, in the clutch, you know, so... It, he felt close uh, in Miami, was was very close to beating Vonda Shanschlup in, in in that match, but, you know, wasn't able to turn that one around once it once it got away from him. So, yeah, that's been a big – I know a lot of people didn't have high expectations of him, but I he was just winning a lot of matches, winning a lot of matches. It was very much a part of the conversation for nearly all of 2022. So you felt like that was going to continue at least to some degree in 2023, and it hasn't happened. Yeah, and I have it as one of my biggest surprises. Just again, what is wrong with Kasparud? Because it did feel like a guy last year foundationally. It just felt like his success was so replicable. And, you know, right now he's 87th in 2023 specific ELO rating, 72nd in the 2023 ATP points race. He's five and six overall in the year. Like, again, he has French Open final, U.S. Open finals points. He's going to be fine in the actual rankings. It's not going to shock me to see him play Asterol. You know, it's not a shock to see him play Asterol this week. It's not going to shock me at all if he goes in July and plays Bostad and Stad and all those clay court events that are offered during that little portion of the calendar because he did not accumulate the, the points, the results he was looking for. And he played all the big events, right? He played Australia. He played Indian Wells. He played Miami. They were all... The first two were free points, really, for him to pick up this year, and he just wasn't able to do it. And you just feel like Indian Wells should be a place where Casper has success. That surface, those conditions, and he didn't. And look, right now, I mean, if you want to look statistically, he's not top 25 in hold percentage. He'd been top 10 over the past two years. He's not top 25 in break percentage either. Like, mathematically, things have gone astray for him, and you see that just the lack of confidence in the backhand – I feel like he's playing slice way too much on that wing right now. Yeah, you you just see it. You very much see a guy who's searching for answers out on court and who is going to now try to plot, try and play his way through things. And you mentioned, you know, his scheduling decision in the offseason, and he's talked openly about how that was a mistake, so I won't rehash that. But the fact that you see visibly, like, his level is just off. I didn't realize, you know, I always thought he had a high floor match in, match out. That, that, you know, he's going to do what he does so well. And this first third of the season disproved that. So to me, it was as much a surprise as it was a disappointment. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's hard to, hard to say more. I mean, it's, yeah, that Indian Wells match really felt like a turning point where, like, this is potentially turning into a disaster year for him. But, you know, like you said, there are a lot of options for him to really rack up a lot of, matches between now and the hard court season. I mean, obviously, yeah, he won't drop precipitously because his points are 
seemingly fairly evenly distributed, but it, things can go really bad for him by the end of the year if he's not top eight in the race because he's going to lose his final. I'm pretty sure he won his group as well. Um, and so between that, making me and the, the runner up at ATP finals, like he's someone who can find himself, you know, like like a contabite, like a Bedosa, someone who just really just drops like a stone in November. Well, in this theme, what disappoints you more? And who are you more concerned about moving forward? Bigger question mark. Berrettini or Shapovalov? Because I want to cover both here. Because I think those are two guys who come out of this first third thinking, you know, for Shapo, it's the same story. It's like this inconsistency. You know, you keep saying, all right, I'll give it another year. I'll give it another year. Six years now. Six years of this. Like, Dennis is the same guy. On the right week, he's going to look like one of the five best players in the world. On the wrong week, he's going to lose first round. You know, Berrettini was the inverse of that. Berrettini felt like the surest thing on the ATP Tour in 2021. If he was healthy, his serve, his forehand, he's getting to the quarterfinals of a slam. It's gone astray. Like, it has. And injuries have played a part in that. But, like, I think those are two guys who you come out of this first third thinking, you guys should both be in the Tier 2 conversation. If if you're not on the Alcaraz, Djokovic, healthy Nadal, Medvedev on hardcourts tier— each of you have the power and the talent to be Tier 2. And Matteo Berrettini was the definition of Tier 2 when he was playing his best tennis. Which of those guys are you more locked in on moving forward? In terms of who I'm more concerned about or who yeah, I think has the— Either way, whichever one compels you more to discuss. I mean, Berrettini. I mean, that's a huge difference between Berrettini and Shapovalov, in my opinion. I mean, Shapovalov, you know, gets to be— inconsistent, but also a feminist icon every week that he plays sure. now. So that's that's great for him. But for Berrettini, I think, you know, this was someone who we, you know, was a Novak Djokovic win away, in theory, from winning a slam for a good 18 months. And that even includes, you know, parts of last year when he was coming into Wimbledon feeling like one of the favorites to win that title. And then he catch, you know, gets sick and isn't able to play. So, you know, that's that's where we're at with him. And he really hasn't been able to you know, find that second wind yet. And, you know, we're at a point where I think it's a little different for the ATP guys than it is perhaps for the WTA, because I don't think the ATP has made as many major shifts. I think there's still a lot of room at the top. You know, I think Medvedev was able to prove that, how quickly he was able to turn things around and become a top tier guy again after having a pretty terrible six months. I mean, yes, there's Djokovic and Alcaraz, who at times can seem unbeatable superhuman players, but for various and sundry reasons, they're not always playing. So there's certainly room at the top of the men's game right now. They're really, other than Medvedev, I I struggle to find like who's really taking advantage of that chasm that's being left right now. Yeah. I think when I watch Berrettini, it's not that the book is out on the game plan to face him because that book has always been out. Every player is going to target his backhand wing. Every player is going to approach to that backhand wing. Every player is going to try to serve to that backhand wing with the occasional mix in the forehand to open up attacking that backhand wing. But you think think it's his backhand that's the problem? No, like that's what I'm saying. I, I, I don't know what the problem is because when I watch Matteo Berrettini play, he's the same Matteo Berrettini. It's just, I don't know, it feels like like seven points every match. The deuce point where he used to find the big serve, big forehand combination. Maybe he's just not finding it quite as consistently this season. That's why, like, to me, Shapovalov, well, Berrettini's the more intriguing because I don't know what's wrong. For Shapovalov, it's very clear what's wrong. Double faulting a career high 9.5% of the time, 
First serve percentage, 54.9%. That's a career low for him. He's serving like <laughs> Like, it's very clear what's wrong with Denis Shapovalov right now. And that's why I'm actually kind of intrigued by where he goes from here because I think there are very correctable things for Denis Shapovalov that, you know, right now from a return percentage perspective, break percentage, he's breaking serve at a career high rate, 24.9. He's a top 20 returner right now. This is the first time in his career he's had a prolonged struggle like this on serve. And again, the serve is the thing I'd give him the benefit of the doubt on. That's why, like... That's why Shapo to me is the answer here because I do feel like Shapo's on on the precipice of something. And I just feel like it has to be this year. Like he's in my demon category of like, all right, Denis Shapovalov turns 24 years old in 10 days. He has played at least 25 matches on the ATP tour now or more in six consecutive seasons. He's been over uh, 60 in three of the last five. He's been over 50 in four of the last five. That is a significant enough sample size. And like I know the sample size says Denis Shapovalov is an exceptional server. The return has been the issue. Well, the return is good right now. He just can't find a first serve to save his life. And like, I don't know, that feels more correctable than whatever's wrong with Berrettini. I mean, first of all, the fact that Shapovalov is only 23 going on 24, I feel like I've been watching Shapovala play for like 100%. a decade now. I mean, what was he like? Nine, I guess he must have been 17 or 18 that year that he broke through in Canada in 2017. But um, I mean, I think just the problem with with to, to make that call with Shapo is that I don't think you can necessarily be on the precipice of anything if you're having that many service issues, except getting older. I don't really think like, yes, it's correctable, but you saw what the lengths that, that even Arena Sabalenka had to go to to fix the serve mid-season. And is Dennis going to make that change? I don't know. I mean, I think with Berrettini, it feels more correctable just because he was more consistently closer. To, he was more consistently on the precipice than Shapo. I think the problem with Dennis, even over the years, is just that he's, you know, if it takes a level nine to be, you know, at your best, he I feels like he hits it like an 11. It's like he just hits the ball that much harder to his detriment. And then that's why he gets errors. Things don't always click in the rallies. But I think also with Berrettini, you know, there's a question of, Perhaps, how has he responded to stardom? You know, talk about stardom on the WTA. I think I think on the ATP, he's someone who has gotten a lot of attention, you know, a lot of new attention. You know, for you know being on Breakpoint, you know, being the Hugo Boss guy. I mean, in, at the at the Brickle store in Miami, there were you know he was like one of the models, you know, being plastered on on the wall there. I mean, I think it's it's a lot of attention, and you know, obviously personal things have shifted for him in the last year or so. I mean, there's a lot of um, a lot of changes from where he was when he was playing at his best and, you know, in, at a certain level. So I think maybe it's about adjusting to that. And maybe it's like, sort of like a Kasaki in a situation where, you know, he had his first breakthrough in 2019. He went away for about a year, came back in 2021. Now maybe he's having another lull and maybe in 2024 we're going to expect more from him. But, yeah, I think it's I, I would still pick Berrettini because I just feel like he's been closer, been closer to greatness. Yeah, uh, he's a slam finalist. And again, He's just had so many injuries over the course of the last 16 months, right? It feels like we get two months of Berrettini followed by, you know, uh, the case in point is last year he's playing exceptional tennis, you know, grass court tennis going into Wimbledon gets COVID right before Wimbledon starts. And, you know, prior to that obviously has missed months with different injuries here and there and wasn't at his healthiest to start this season. Still like – 
from a fitness perspective, has he looked off when you've seen him play? Like, has the backhand looked off? I don't know. Like, I guess the thing is, statistically, one of my favorite statistical anomalies, Matteo Berrettini for his career, 500 at the tour level in two out of three hard, uh, two out of three set hard court matches. It has never made sense to me. And it remains, it, it just, it shouldn't, like, his serve, his forehand are too good for that to be the case. I mean, I guess it's a, it's also a question of is is Mateo built for tennis? I mean, we talk about how sure. Jung Chin Wen feels That's built for tennis. He is an intri- you know, Mateo has a non-traditional tennis body, and perhaps that is contributing to some of the injuries. I mean, when I look at players who are injured all the time, I think of, you know, what is their technique? What are their patterns? How often are they relying on patterns? Because one, if you're not technically sound, you're more likely to injure yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you're not relying on consistent patterns, perhaps you're improvising, you're taking sudden movements on the practice court or on the match court that you're not normally taking. And that can lead itself to injury as well. It means the Anjabor issue. It's the Bianca Andreescu issue. Yeah. And the fact, again, to round it back, he doesn't have a traditional tennis body. He doesn't have that strong foundation, you know, on the lower half of his body. Perhaps that is what is, you know, leading to some wear and unnecessary wear and tear for him. Because I mean, from a technical perspective, he doesn't seem terrible and he doesn't seem like he has like totally unpredictable patterns it could just be the body in the, in the situation yeah uh, it's very fair and you know to hear you speak of the body i think that's where we can move on to our next topic and it's can the young stars today healthy because when we've seen carlos alcaraz this year he's been exceptional he's gonna be out you know he's gonna miss monte carlo as he's recovering from an injury he picked up in miami Yannick Sinner still on and off with his health issues. Seppi Korda, obviously, the massive month of January. We haven't seen him since. Not a ton of Jensen Brooksby over the course of the past few months. He's been dealing with injuries. Pass has been banged up as well. Yeah, I mean, how concerned are you with the health of these young stars? For me, it's like, you know, again, half of them aren't even 23 yet. So I'm not too concerned. Let's not forget, until he gave up gluten, fitness was an issue for Novak Djokovic, and then 2011 hits, and it hasn't been an issue since. And the, the reason I use the age 23 is because Djokovic was 23, turning 24 in that 2011 season. Like, these guys aren't in their physical prime yet. The game requires a degree of physicality, in my opinion, that ha- it's never seen before. I don't know. How concerned are you with the health of the young stars? You heard it here first, Sebi Quarter. Give up the gluten. That's that's the secret here. That's what we're trying to subliminally, subliminally advertise at you. Um, I mean, those are it's again talk about different bodies. I mean, to compare Alcaraz to your sinners and your quarters. I mean, when when it's sinner and quarter, it almost makes sense because they're they're still almost like boys. Like they kind of yeah. still have like boy bodies. Whereas, uh, you know, literally, sinner still has baby cheeks. Yeah, I mean, Alcaraz is a man. <laughs> you know, if I, I look at Alcaraz and if he's a man, I must not be one. Like, I'm some kind of like, you know, blobby imposter. Um, but I think it goes back to what we discussed yesterday, the idea that Alcaraz is perhaps always on 12, you know, just yeah. always going for the most, doing the most on the court. And perhaps that is leading to some injuries. But I think, yeah, we're starting to see a, a worrying pattern with Corda over the last year or so. I'm pretty sure he didn't play Wimbledon because he was injured. And now he's, you know, missing large swaths of this season due to injury. You know, that's, it's brutal. I mean, I think that's, that's probably the biggest issue. I mean, then obviously with Brooksby, I think it goes back to sort of, again, like the, the unpredictability of that kind of game and the fact that he's not relying on, you know, heavy artillery off the ground while he is an offensive player. He did, he made, made it clear he's an aggressive player, but he's not a traditionally aggressive player. And so that can be, you know, lead to some injuries, unfortunately for him. So I think, yeah, those are a, a, a very random list. And for Sitsipas, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> it feels very 
you know, up in the air with 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 the with the sky. I mean, he certainly didn't seem he seemed healthier in Miami. I think now it's just a matter of match toughness and all that. But um, Medvedev's back. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that matters. Back. No. Remember when when uh, Sitsipas was the de facto number two? I don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, perfectly said. Yeah, I. I I, I do think, again, from a question mark standpoint, again, disappointments. There are a few other mini ones, like Nori wins the clay court uh, title over Alcaraz. He beats Alcaraz. Uh, he plays a really fun three-setter with Alcaraz the week before as well. And then for him to drop early matches, really. I mean, the Tiafo match is one thing at Indian Wells. But Nori, again, you expected to see Nori in like a semifinal, maybe, of one of these Sunshine Swing events. He doesn't do it in either. Similarly, Demon Hour... To have the result he had in Mexico, he must have sold his soul because he had a very disappointing sunshine swing. You know, I think Lorenzo Musetti's entire 2023 thus far, I know he's had some injuries, but you'd have to qualify it as disappointing. Musetti, 5-7 and seven overall on the year. The last question I'd want to address, and I'm curious where you are, and then we'll move on to surprises, and we're going to go through that a little bit quicker. Um, when will we next see Rafa healthy? Right? Isn't that one of the biggest questions looming over the clay court season? Because if he's not healthy, then that Alcaraz Djokovic first match truly does become everything. If he is healthy, now it's a whole other wrinkle. Now there's like the world where Rafa's going to be the floating 17th seed at Roland Garros, right? Or if he's able to get a few tournaments in, maybe he works his way up to like 9 or 10. Still, that's the question, right? And I'm curious like where you are with that. I don't know. I mean, it's always worrying once he starts to take, you know, clay court tournaments off his calendar. I mean, you think, you know, he took the time, he missed, you know, skipped Indian Wells, Miami. Maybe he's going to be back in time for Monte Carlo and, you know, play a full slate of clay tournaments that we're used to seeing him play over the last two decades. You know, your Monte Carlo, Barcelona, you know, Madrid, Rome, Rolling Garros. I mean, like we're used to him doing all that and doing it, you know, flawlessly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, Queen. <laughs> Girl, you have done it again. Um, yeah, I mean, he has constantly raised the bar for us over the last uh, two decades of a really phenomenal career. But that Have said, you seen the, fact- the video of him where he's at Wimbledon and he's going through and he's like 2012, didn't lose, 2013, didn't lose, 2014, lose. I lost once for air. And he's like going through and it's like you can actually count it on two hands how many times he's lost on clay. You can count it on eyebrow. Yeah. Just one, just one eyebrow from Nadal. Um, yeah. It is – yeah, it's worrisome that he's already skipping Monte Carlo. You know, it makes you wonder how healthy he is or is not. And then, yeah, like you said, if he's not going to be a factor in the clay swing, you start to wonder, you know, what are his long-term prospects? You know, it's – we've been saying this now for it feels like a decade and a half, but he's not getting any younger. You know, what are – where are we with Rafa? I mean, we're now going to be, you know, going to be a year removed from the Federer official retirement from mm-hmm. the fall. You don't know how much longer Rafa can, maybe wants to keep playing. I have to think the fact that, you know – it's still so close between him and Djokovic and that Grand Slam race has to be like weighing on him, you know, all that extra pressure. Although I guess, you know, just statistically speaking or just logistically speaking, it seems like unlikely that Nadal finishes ahead of Djokovic overall because just based on where he is physically and the fact that he's older than no- than Novak, you think that this is all kind of going in one direction for him. But um, I certainly think he probably wants to rack up as many as he still can. And his best chance to do so would be Roland Garros. So I think he's probably certainly wanting to preserve his body for that. I and mean, if he skips Paris, then that feels like alarm bells. Or if he's like just coming back to play Paris, that's, you know, not great either. So I think where how soon he comes back kind of determines how seriously to take the uh, – the injury situation. We're certainly on like, 
you know, on a yellow alert. Maybe we're going to go up to orange and then red as as the weeks tick by. Yeah. Very well said. All right. Let's move over to surprises. I gave you a list. I'm going to ask you to pick one. Here are your list of options. Julin's month of January. Everything Diana Schneider during Australia. I'll add Magda Lynette's Australian Open run to the list as well. The fact that a top three and in some cases top three to eight-ish consensus has formed at the top of the WTA Tour. Petra Kvitova in Miami. The Trevisan, uh, the Trevenaissance, however we want to say it, the Trevisan Renaissance. Kirstea Sunshine Swing. Those are your options. DK, your biggest surprise from the first third of the WTA season. Well, to quote Stone Stevens, not Trevisan. Um, <laughs> Julin and Diana Schneider both seem very par for the course, you know, just subbing a different name on the WTA. Those seem sure. less surprising. Um, Petra winning a big tournament. Mildly surprising, Christea, mildly to very surprising what she was able to do in Miami. I mean, I think I got to go back to my top three, top 10 really taking shape. I mean, it has been brutal. It has been brutal. I mean, even talking to people within the WTA who have had to cover this and try to explain this for the last two and a half years, it has not been easy. And if anything, it's almost kind of a little boring now because things are so stable that there's not like here's a new random name you need to know. Here's a you know breakthrough performance you got to get to get to know and, and learn about because it's going to change the whole tapestry of the WTA tour. Things are quite stable, arguably maybe even more stable than the ATP right now, just in terms of like who is the fact that they're all playing at once. You know, it, right, right now the ATP feels like they're kind of taking turns a little bit between your Alcaraz, uh, Medvedev and Djokovic, you know, who's playing when and who's healthy when. Um but yeah, I think it's for the WTA, it's got to be the the the, co- the the coagulation at the top of the game. I think it's it's long overdue, greatly appreciated and celebrated, and it's but all the same, quite surprising. Yeah, couldn't say it better myself. Men's side, I gave you two candidates: Medvedev winning twenty four of twenty five from February onward. The other option, and I think we have to say it. The precipitous decline of Diego Schwartzman. It's Rude. been miserable for all of us. Schwartzman, I think three and nine now overall on the year. Schwartzman has found finds himself currently thirty six in the rankings, which like again, not horrible, but you look for Schwartzman right now in terms of the ATP points race this season, hundred seventy third. I mean, he's talked Aww. openly about his struggling with form. Look, he's still 30, and, like, I know he's not the biggest. The physicality has always been so essential to his game, but, like, it just hasn't worked now for about nine months, DK. Dieguito, ay, por favor. I mean, <laughs> it has just been muy triste to see what Diego has or has not done, and it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better for him because he. I think he had a quote that said that he's, if anything, more nervous to perform on clay than on hard courts because he knows this is like anytime he's on clay, it's an opportunity for him to gain points and get back some momentum. So that's that's bad news because it's, it's only clay for the next couple of weeks for him. So, I mean, is it a surprise? I mean, it's relative to expectations. I mean, I think what Medvedev was able to do from February – to Miami is certainly very shocking. The fact that he was so consistent, you kept thinking he was going to have a letdown. He was going to get tired. You know, certainly he had every opportunity to have a big old meltdown at Indian Wells. And he managed to, as we said, turn it into performance art and really kind of won everybody over, even though he didn't end up winning that title, winning so many matches, beating Novak, you know, getting, getting his first Miami title, you know, reestablishing himself within the world's top four and, you know, uh, power rankings wise, making himself very much the number three of that, you know, Djokovic, 
um, Alcaraz Medvedev trio now heading into the clay court mm-hmm. season. And I mean, I think you want to save any and all Medvedev related surprises for the clay. <laughs> if he overperforms on clay, maybe that's the big shocker. But I did not see this coming, especially when he was down a set to uh, Foki in Rotterdam. I thought this was going to be a pretty long year for him. And he turned it around to arguably be better than he ever was. So, I mean, it's uh, in that way, I'm surprised. I agree with you. I think it's the how definitive it was for two months. Again, that there was never a blinking of the eye, that there was never a single bad tournament, that it was Rotterdam rolled into the next week, rolled over to the AT, uh, to the Middle East, brought over here to the United States from Indian Wells. And he has a weird, wacky game. It's not like yeah. someone who, it's not like a Carlo, you know, say like a Karlovich hit like, you know, 90 aces. You know, yeah, this is exactly. someone who's got to really play a physical game too to, to play his best. And it held up so well. Yeah, you're right. He played 25 matches in like 50 days. That's a ton of tennis. And, he, and again, he was playing like 13 top 20 opponents or whatever it was. And long matches in many instances. Yeah, I mean, the it's... long match against Verev. I mean, this was not like a walk through the park in, in many instances either. Yeah, guy is – no, I agree. I think that's the biggest surprise is just how darn good he was. With that said, let's do it. My current top 10 players in the world, where things stand after the first third of the season. I'm going a little bit off of results, a little bit off of vibes. DK, you're going to tell me if I'm right or wrong, all right? This is where we're at our best. Grusk makes lists, and I tell them that they're bad. Number one, Anastasia Potapova. Oh, my God. Higher. (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) All right. We'll start on the women's side. Okay. I still have, going into the clay court season, one Iga, two Sabalenka, Three Rabakina, four Krechikova. Let's stop there. For now, that's fine with you? I don't know if I would have Iga at number one. I just wouldn't. I mean, I think that there is an argument to be made that, yes, she could shut me up in a month and go undefeated in Madrid and Rome. That is very possible. And even Sugard, I don't actually know her full schedule. It's very possible. She's got that kind of game on clay to do very well. But I think based on what we have seen and based on the form of her closest rivals and the fact that perhaps the field might be feeling a little bit differently about Sviantec this time around, knowing that, hey, if I really take it to Iga, if I really take it to her serve, if I really take away the forehand timing, I might have a shot. I might not get double bageled. You know, I think there's there's a pretty big chasm that comes from being feeling like you're unbeat, unbeatable to suddenly feeling beatable. I mean, we've seen it from all the best. I mean, what Venus and Serena were able to do in 2002, 2003, to suddenly starting to feel like, hmm, oh, Venus is a little beatable. Venus has got these weaknesses. Serena's got these weaknesses. And all of a sudden, you're not unbeatable anymore. So I don't know if I would have her at number one. I mean, I think based on, you know, based on uh, reputation and the fact that we are heading into her best time of year, it's not, it doesn't feel wrong. It just doesn't feel correct, if that makes sense. Can I give you the obvious counter? Sure. We haven't seen anyone do it on clay. And you look for Iga, who to start this season still very quietly, 16 and four, right, overall in the year. Her and Sabalenka, the only two players, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Her losses are Pagula, Rabakina, Krechikova, Rabakina. Yes, DK. I would, ca- I would counter that in that list, You there's one French Open champion and there's one Madrid champion. So we have seen two of them do it on clay. But, but no, not beat Egon clay. Oh, not beat Egon clay, but perform quite well no, on clay. No, no, I oh, meant for, Oh, yes. Excuse me. I mean, I need to see someone oh, beat Egon because you her on overpowering oh. her through the forehand. You're right. Yeah. There's a path there on a hard court. I need to see someone do it on a clay court before I believe. Okay. I mean, I do think Sabalenka could do it. I think I, I agree, especially at three. Stuttgart. Yeah. That would be the yeah. one because I think Sabalenka is the best mover also on the clay court relative to Rabakina. And, you know, and she racked up some wacky losses to her on clay that I don't think yeah. she would have 
now. I think, you know, that head to head is always going to look a little strange because there's yeah. going to be that time where she was just not playing great. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think just again, I need to see someone do it to Egon Clay. Fair enough. That's why she's won. It's Sablanca. a center rule. I got to see it. Yeah, exactly. Safflanka two, Rabakina three, Kredge four. You're fine with Kredge at four? Yeah. I think if yeah. Kretschkova had beaten Sabalink in Miami, maybe you'd argue for three, but I think that's where we're at right now. Pagula five? Yeah. I would I don't I don't think I would have said that at the start of the year. I'm very shocked to see her be like a solid top fiver, but yeah, yeah that's I where think we're it's at. five, and I actually think I think there's a drop between Rabakata and Kredge, small drop. And yeah. then I think a big drop between Kredge and Pagula. And then I yes. think an even bigger drop between Pagula and who's ever next. Yes. I mean, yeah. I was very impressed by what Pagula was able to do, how she's been able to carry her momentum from the end of last year or lack thereof and kind of really kickstart this season as a, you know, very credible top three player. I, she's not my number three, but she's number three on the rankings, and I can't take that away from her. Pagula third this season, 19 wins overall on the year. I have Goff six. All right, let me tell the rest because it'll give yeah. you better context. That Please, doesn't work yeah. as well. I have Goff six. Kvitova 7, Benchich 8, Sakari 9, Garcia 10. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> okay. Garcia 4th on the WTA Tour in wins right now. Goff Foster has Lapper. title from January. I thought she was fine during the sunshine swing. Benchich, awesome through January and February, even if she had a rough sunshine swing. Sakari did make an Indian Wells semifinal. Like, that's the case for all of them. And then Kvitova won Miami. Yeah, I mean, it feels like recency bias to put Kvitova ahead of Goff, but that's something that's something that feels right because I feel like if Kvitova played Goff right now, Kvitova would win. Even on clay? Like mm, I mean, Kvitova's play. I mean, maybe, maybe a Madrid clay. I mean, sure. but even, I don't know. I mean, based Stuttgart, on how well she— That would be interesting. Yes. I, th- I think she would beat her in Stuttgart. Yeah, I, mean, I still indoors. think that's a, that's a strange one, especially for Coco, yeah. who doesn't necessarily have that experience on indoor red clay. But, God, the, the names got, like, thin really fast for me. I was like, who, who else? I mean, I would – I mean, Well, based so on, like, missing t- yeah. from this list, do you want to know who's missing? Yes. So there's no Jabur right now. I think that's right. fair. Yes. There's no Kasakina. I think that's right. fair. No Kudermatova. Fair. No Haddad Maya. Fair. Yeah. Samsonova, no. Like, yeah, we were close to Samsonova. The next closest, in my opinion, would probably be either Potapova or Vekic. And, like, I'll put Garcia. Or Azarenka. Yeah, yeah, which was the next name I was going to say. But I'd put Garcia above them right now because she's just played more. She's done more. She's won more. Again, fourth in total wins. Like, I'm rewarding her playing as frequently as she had. Yeah, I mean, to, to think of. She gets my points boost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like. I don't know. Again, as I've said, I was not super glamored by what Benchich did to start the season. I feel very vindicated by how she did not perform that great in Indian Wells in Miami when it really mattered. You know, I just felt like there was things were really breaking her way and, you know, played a lot of matches to start the season. And maybe that started to catch up with her now heading on to clay where she's traditionally not performed that great. Um, Except for in Charleston. Yeah, the green clay. I know. Yeah. I've I watched a lot of Lena Vezina over the years. I know the difference mm-hmm. between gray, green clay and, and red clay. It's not – doesn't always translate, unfortunately, especially in singles. But, I mean, I think, yeah, Petra, I would look at, you know, a Vekic, a Potapova. I would look at an Azarenka, even a Pliskova, and maybe a Magdalenette. I mean, I just I just don't know where we go I, uh, with Sakari, with Garcia. I just feel like even with what Sakari was able to do at Indian Wells, it felt like sort of a last gasp. For her and I, the fact that she didn't really do that great in Miami and 
you know, feels like I don't know where we're at with her. Then let me ask it this way. Should golf be in the top 10? Yes, because I think she is kind of slotting herself into a Pagula level of consistency where like, you know, that she's probably going to make the fourth round or quarters, but really have trouble now with Pagula. She's making the fourth quarters and perhaps really seeing herself as a semifinalist finalist. And that's that's an improvement. You know, that's something yeah. to be to be uh, to be praised. No, I agree. I think she's the last one here where you're like, she should definitely be in there. And then to your point, there's a bunch of names. Kvitova, Bencic, Sakari, Garcia. If you want to start bringing in the Azarenkas, how well Annette's played, et cetera. That's where things get a little funky. So, yeah, clear-cut top six. That's what you're telling me right yeah, now. Which is what uh, we were saying. Yeah, six, yeah. Six, six women, really. So that's the point of this exercise. Coming out of the first third, again, I wanted to see how you felt. I felt very similarly. After Goff, I had to start saying like, okay, Kavita is playing better right now. Benchich was – but that's where I really had to start. I, it felt easy through Goff is the point I'm trying to make. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. And so with that in mind, let's see if it's as easy on the men's side. Djokovic won. I mean, I, we, did we have this conversation yesterday where I felt like what All Djokovic right. was able to do in Australia was maybe not enough necessarily for me to consider him number one? I mean, granted, without Nadal to start this clay court season, it's very possible that he just really rips the reins from Medvedev's and even Yurakaraz's and defines himself as number one. But I think based on the first three months, I might have been number two. Interesting. Would you put Alcaraz at one or Medvedev? I think I might put Medvedev at number one. I mean, I think, I mean, this is a Djokovician like kind of streak that we saw from, I mean, certainly if Djokovic did what he did, you know, through 24 to 25 matches, that's, that's big three guy level stuff. And that's something we were assuming we would get from an Alcaraz. And the fact that we're getting it from Medvedev also feels like sweet karmic justice that you're like, you know, you got your dominant guy ATP, but it's not the one you would have ever thought in a million years. So it kind of feels, that feels fair. And yeah. something about Alcaraz always, always felt, like I said, a little too perfect. But then, I don't know if the ATP deserves someone like that, like Simba from the Lion King. Sometimes they need a little Timon and Pumbaa. Very well said, Timon, Was Pumbaa. It? <laughs> uh, nah, we'll leave it in anyways. I'll take it. Uh, yeah. Um, I think that it's a consensus top three. I put Djokovic one because again, vibes, I'll pick him. In and the slam. That's, that's yeah. very much the David rule. Yeah. Then I have Alcaraz too, just because of what he did to Medvedev specifically. Medvedev three, Fair. but three also because we're going into clay now. So that's why he's at three for me. Yeah, I think Sinner has to be four after that. Like I think Sinner slots in there perfectly. Fair? Not Casper? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the uh, the current ATP top 10. Yeah. But yeah, I Casper's think Yannick Sinner again. Oh, brutal. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, listen, I came, I had a, I had a very simple request the Yannick Sinner to start uh, the season and he did it. He did beat a big guy at a big tournament. Yeah. Now he's got to do it again. So like the, yeah. like the triple axel from Tanya Hardy. Now I want to see it. And if I don't yeah. see it, I'm really disappointed. I like it. All right. Sinner's my four. Tommy Paul at five. Oh, you like it here. It all gets out. Let me just read them all from here. <laughs> Tommy Paul five, Fritz six, Hatchinov seven. Yes. Tiafo eight, Rublev nine, Tsitsipas 10. Isn't that crazy? Three Americans in. And I don't feel like weird about it. No, it feels very right, particularly Fritz, Paul and Fritz in either Mm -hmm. order. I mean, it just feels like this is where we're at right now that we have three really a level. And I don't even know if they even consider themselves at that. Maybe Fritz a little bit, but I I, I have to wonder if Paul and TFO really getting a sense of how the field is taking shape and where they stand within it. I think if you ask them, they would still be like, well, there's so many guys ahead of me. It's like, well, there's not that many guys. Mm -hmm. And those guys are not all playing at the same time and they're not all playing great at the same time. So there's actually quite a bit of room for you. I mean, I was very impressed with 
Francis in particular, the fact that he saw that draw or maybe didn't see that draw or was at least in that draw and took advantage of it to its fullest capacity. I mean, the only thing, only thing more you could have asked of him was to beat Medvedev in the semis, but that was, that's tough. So, and I mean, he the fought fact off he seven match least, points. He came darn near close to doing very it. Very close. Well. Yeah, for sure. And, and if he wins that second set, I have to think he wins the match. So, I mean, that was effectively a, a, th- a third set tiebreaker for him there. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that and feels he hasn't right. Been I mean, the greatest on clay, but it feels like he should be better on it. Like, I just I mean, like Francis's got, game on the surface, the creativity, he's a good the athlete. angles. Yeah. yeah I mean, to I mean, have a little more time on his forehand. Like, I just think his game's going to work on this surface. Yeah. I know he doesn't love clay and he's like ready to go. I mean, I think when yeah. he was talking at Wimbledon last year, it was like, ah, it's all about the grass. But yeah. I think, you know, this is this is the difference now. Now that you're, you know, top 10 ish guys, top 15 ish guys, you're going to be expected to do well. And, you know, maybe, and that'll, that, Momentum kind of carries you a little bit. Suddenly you're in the third round of Rome where you would have lost in the first round because you didn't have a bye. And, you know, there suddenly opportunities start to kind of abound for you. I mean, a little interesting. I don't think you mentioned Felix. I don't think you mentioned. Um, no Felix, no Runa, no, no, Nadal, no Hercats, yeah. no Hercats, no Nori. Again, all those guys a little off for me. They're all in the conversation, especially FAA, Felix. You know, if you want to swap Rublev out, put Tsitsipas up at nine and then put all those guys tied for ten. I acknowledge yeah. my error, but I think the Americans have all been better this year. They have. They have. And I don't know where Sitsipas stands, you know, coming into the clay court season. I mean, I think that's that's also sort of the difficulty in this is that we're we're trying to reward the first three months, but also not to make it totally a time capsule. We wanted exactly. to say this is how these players are going to perform the next couple of months. I mean, I, I felt like Holger Runa was going to be in the top 10. You know, yeah. but I think, you know, we go back to that match in Australia really has changed things for him a little bit. It hasn't really gotten off the ground and now splitting with Moritoglu and how that how that might affect his team going forward. Yeah. Um, Although it is worth know. noting analytically, one of six guys to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage right now, Holger Runa. So if you're holding out hope for Holger, there is still a little bit of upside there. And I can understand why you would hold out hope for him, DK, because the last thing I want to do with you today is redraft our teams. And just again, how it worked, we DK and I came together at the end of last season, December before the start of this year, we drafted teams. The rules were you got to draft one top five player, two top 20, uh, two top, uh, two, excuse me, one top five player, one ranked six through 20. Two players ranked 21 through 50, and a wild card ranked 51 plus. Now, just to right. recap what our teams looked like, when we'll start, we'll just go gender by gender here. DK's women's team. He had Sabalenka as his top five player, Collins as his top 15 player. We must have changed the rules as we went because I think the men's, we had a strict rule. The women's was a little bit more chaotic. Well, I think uh, some, of, some of us really strayed from the rules and others yeah, of us me. did not. <laughs> um, so your women's team is Sabalenka. She had a pretty yeah. good first third. Um, Collins. Eh. Osaka. We didn't see. Potipova, Winning in life. Very good first third. Alicia Parks. Great first month. Has fallen off a bit since. So again, Sabalenka, Potapova, Parks, your top three. I had Benchich, who certainly I would say outdid Parks and at minimum played Potapova even. Now from a stock rising perspective, Potapova stock rose more and she's a top 50 player for you. So I'd keep her in that slot, DK. I had Benchich, Samsonova, Teichman. Those two are tough. Though Samsonova did make a final in the Middle East. Krechikova, who won a title there. And Vondrusova, who has just been rock solid, who's going to get back into the top 25. And so we'll start on the women's side. 
You have Sabalenka. My best is Krechikova. You win that. Bencic versus Potapova. Even? No, Potapova stock rose more. You win that. Vondrosova versus Parks. I mean, Parks stock technically rose more. I think Vondrosova has been better. I'll concede. You won the women's. I agree. Through the first third. And so the rule we agreed to. You get to swap out one spot. Again, your one through five, your your five through twenties, your top fifties, uh, or your fifty-one plus DK. Would you like to make a swap? Would you like to hold firm? You tell me what you're doing here. Well, one of my girls is pregnant, so yeah, I would certainly like to. I mean, I, there are other names I would like to swap off this list, but I feel like I got to get the pregnant girl off the list before sure. I before I make any other changes. I I would like to to submit a, a, a possible rule addendum that the winner of the group gets to make two changes, but I, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> uh, I, next time we'll do yeah, that for next time. So we'll add some increased stakes, some improved stakes here. So Osaka, by the way, is one of your 21 through 50s. She is. She is. So I. I mean, I think we you know we talked about her a little bit um, earlier, which doesn't really narrow the field down for you because we talked about approximately eighty people. But um, <laughs> I'm going to go with my queen of candles, Donna Vekic, for my twenty-one through fifty. She's Ooh. currently ranked twenty-three, was a top twenty player about two weeks ago, and you know I think for the specialty surfaces, I'm you know got Pam Shriver on her team. I am thinking that she's going to have a pretty good summer. She'll certainly be on the court, which is more than we could say about it. <laughs> more than Naomi Osaka. I mean, I, for me, it's between obviously Osaka, Parks, and Collins as to who I'd want to make my swap. But I think I got to really get the, the the player who's not planning to play at all in 2023 off my squad. So I got to I got to swap a Naomi Osaka for Donna Vekic. It's a very good swap by you. It's a good pick again. Vekic, one of four players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage through the first third. She's been on fire through the last six months, something like 26 and like six overall. So great pick by you. And she's just great. Yeah. <laughs> Love her. I have a conundrum, DK, because Krejcikova, Vondrosova, they're not moving the rest of this season. They're locks. I picked Bencic instead of a top five player. You did. <laughs> and at the time we agreed no Iga Sviantek. Are we sticking with that rule or are we scrapping it? Let's stick with it for now. Yeah, just for I mean, posterity on one hand, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't consider her as Djokovician as she yeah. was a few months ago. But on the on the other hand, to pick her right before the clay court season feels yeah, a little bit. Yes, so mayor cheat. So I so I have two options here. I leave Benchic in my top five, or I swap her out for a Pagula, let's say, or because that's really the choice you'd make of the top five players right now. I'm looking at the live rankings, top five. I'd have. Pagula, Garcia, and Jabur to pick from. So it'd be either Pagula for Bencic Wait, or swap Rabakina for my twenty for my six through twenty, which is Ludmilla Samsonova. Here's the thing though. I'm gonna get more out of Samsonova moving forward through the rest of this year than I am for my 21 through 50. Like, do I really want to hold the Jill Teichman stock when I could go get a Jung Chin Wen or I could go get I don't know who's someone who's playing really well right now who I feel like could make a pop through this clay court season. Honestly, what if Jill Teichman makes a cup? But she lost first round to Fruvertova in Charleston. Green clay. So here's the thing. Could I get off of Teichman now or do I just take Rabakina? And the answer is if there's a blue chip on the board, you take the f-
blue chip. So I'm going to take Elena Rabakina with my pick DK. I'm going to swap her in. Uh, now, do I get any credit for what she's done through the first third of the season? I do not. So let's remember that's where the change Spiritually uh, speaking, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> change for uh, – so, you know, you're still charged for Osaka through the first three months. Uh, out, I am char- swapping out Samsonova for number seven, Elena Rabakina. Um, I'm making a note of these things as we go here, DK, where the switches happen. And, you know, again, when they happened, yeah, I, I like my team. I like my team. I'm one I'm one pick away. I'm one more third of the season away from having the perfect roster. I know. Let's, let's move over to the men's side. You had Elkaraz, not bad. Runa, fine. He held firm. Then Kyrgios, Musetti, and team. That's rough. I had Felix <laughs> as my top five. He was okay. A little disappointing, but not horrible. Sinner, very good. Draper, fine. Corda, outstanding first month. Shelton was my 51 plus. He's now inside the top 50. He made a quarterfinal in Australia. Aren't you glad you let me convince you to pick Shelton? Well, I mean, I know you, you were so like. Do you concede? Um. Alcaraz, no. Sinner, the head to head is straight up one to one. And then my next two just win. Like, no, you don't have Al- a third guy. I, it doesn't matter. Hold on. Alcaraz won Indian Wells and Runa won the internet when he had his fight with Favrinka. So, I mean, internet is like the fifth slam. So, and Karios was still making news. He was on a podcast, I seem to recall. It's true. Um, Dominic Team, always an article about Dominic Team, whether he wins or loses, and more often not than he loses. Um, but I mean, the fact that you had the, the temerity to pick Ben Shelton, I have to do mm-hmm. give you ups for that one. And the Thank fact you. that Sitter did make the Miami finals, that is solid. You're a solid second place, I have to say. <laughs> Just behind me. All right. Well, with that said, you you well, may have I, the first pick. Who you? Take? I was going to say, I'll let you pick first after I, I roasted you. No. So here's the thing. If I swap out my top five and we're still going no Djokovic, I'd have the option of Tsitsipas, Medvedev, or Rude <sighs> through the, for a top five player. I want to hold Draper. I'm holding Sinner in my 6 through 20. I'm never giving him up. No. I like Draper, who's currently sitting for what it's worth at number – where is Jack Draper in the rankings? Jack, did you fall outside of the top 50? He's currently at 55. That's fine. He's out of Miami, unlikely to do well on clay. You're really banking on a big Wimbledon grass swing from I just don't want to give him up. Corda's at 26. I'll keep him. Shelton, I'm keeping. Do I give up Draper – problem is I couldn't get Tommy Paul. Who could I go get right now? Ooh. 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 I should I should ask, is this these are these rankings from January or are we picking rankings from now? From now. From now. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. interesting. Um or do you want them from January? No, let's go no, from now. Let's we'll go, go from, from now. now. Okay, I'm between two guys. Do I take Sebi Baez and just ride it for the clay court season? And replace no, Draper quite, for now. Quite do traumatized from his Davidovich, loss from Zverev last year. Yeah. Do I take Davidovich Fokina? No. You know what? I'm going to take Daniil Medvedev for this hard court <gasps> season. He's currently sitting at number four in the rankings. He doesn't have anything to defend. I'll take him. I just want him. He's on the board. He's available. Uh, I'm taking Daniil Medvedev right now. D- DK, your response, your reaction. Makes, makes me sad. I want him on my team. I don't know if I would have picked him, but I would I would like him at my lunch table. <laughs> <laughs> this is my proverbial lunch table, my, my tree house, if you will. If you go back to Codename Kids Next Door, I, I would like, like him on my team. But I also don't know where we're going to – I mean, 
probably better than than Felix. And maybe, mm-hmm. you know, Daniil has a better French Open, but I don't know where we I don't know if we're really trading that much for the other. And I think with Draper and Corda, we don't know when they're coming back from their respective injuries. And I feel like with, again, with Draper, you're really banking on a big grass swing from him and Corda, big question mark. But Sinner, obviously, can't pick against that. For the men, I have so many problems on my men's squad. (laughs) I really like... um, You really do. I mean, Kyrgios has not played yet, but you have to think he'll come back for grass. If it's the, if we're doing the Draper rule, we're thinking that he's going to have a big Wimbledon that's worth keeping him around. <sighs> Holger Runa. You know, See, I'd hold Musetti because I think he could have a good clay. Yeah, I don't – I'm unclear why I picked Lorenzo Musetti for the hardcourt season and why I'm considering <laughs> dumping him for the clay. Feels like not great on – not great strategy what on my part. What if you drop Runa and take Tommy? I'm thinking about it. But I think that's the low hanging fruit or you drop Kyrgios for Davidovich Fokina and then you pick up Kyrgios maybe again afterwards. When are we we reshuffling this after the French or after after the clay? Do we do it right before the French and then you have to keep them for the French Open? Oh, that's mean. No, but I feel like that's the best time to do it. Right. Because it's like grass court season doesn't really count. Fair. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting bet who you think is going to have yeah. a collective better French Open in Wimbledon. That is exactly. that's more interesting content, ladies and gentlemen, the that's, things we do for content. Editor in chief. I like to show it every so often. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean, I feel like in the spirit of, you know, hyping up all these American men, it feels wrong not to have one on my, on my team. Unfortunately, they've all had such great three months that it's, you know, you can't even slot. You're you really buying would, I, I would, yeah. I would have to dump Runa for one of them, and I don't. Hmm. And I don't know if I you want to sell on him. Runa right now. I know we're heading onto the clay court swing. And... Look, just sell Kyrios. It's right there. Kyrios for Davidovich Fokina oh, is the well. easiest thing for you to do. If you get him back before the French, or you get him back before. Right. No, you're right. If I'm if I'm repicking again, either way, I'm repicking before Wimbledon mm-hmm. and before the grass. So that would be logical. But because you told me to pick him, I don't really want to necessarily pick Fokina. <laughs> That feels like, again, not great content. I'm doing what I was told. Although I'm struggling to think of a better name here between 20 and 50. <laughs> Although I know a lot of names now, thanks to you. Talon, Talon Greeks for anybody? Um, hmm. <laughs> Oof. It's tough. Mm. No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the only it is the the only logical name if I'm going to swap Curios would be to swap him for Fokina. Unfortunately, it's literally it's it's the low hanging fruit. Mm, I mean, or I could be totally nuts and pick Berrettini if I'm going to do that, or I pick mm. Runa for Tommy Paul. I mean, Berrettini is, is a bold pick. My all Italian squad of Musetti and Berrettini <laughs> <laughs> just just really unfortunate the way I've really kind of outfoxed myself with this men's draft. I, I like to think I'm a bit more, you know, up on things um, when it comes to the men's game nowadays. But this is this this ranking uh, category. It was a weak really moment. You let your heart lead me. you. Um, You know what? I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to sell Holgaruna and I'm going to buy Tommy Paul. That's. That's DK. My heart. I like it. Right. That's leading with that. That's just a good pick. Out for number 18, Tommy Paul. Well, hold on. Now that I know he's on the free agency, I'm going to sw- – no, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, yeah, but I could still pick Holger Runa before the French if he like Absolutely. wins Rome. It doesn't yeah, mean to really spite Exactly. Me. <laughs> you can have him back if 
if he's going to be again, maybe you won't want to sell Tommy at that point. I mean, uh, we'll see where the rank. It still feels fall. very stupid to not to leave Curios on my squad. That feels very <laughs> dumb because I highly doubt he's going to play for the next two months. Ooh. Oh, um, three. You know what? I'm going to do it for cool. I'm going to do it for cool factor. Nikiros is on my team, even though he's not even playing. He's yeah. great for tennis. There. I mean, ah. just keep in mind, we have a full cheesecake dinner on whose team looks better at the end of the, of the uh, season. And so, although if one of us wins the men and one of us wins the women, do we just split? Yeah, I don't, know. I, don't, I don't really know how that works. I kind of feel like that's where we're headed. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen that way. My team, I've, I have Benchich, Rabakina, Krechikova, and Vondrosova. I'm smacking you. That is solid. Um, yeah, you're 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 more set up for success. I am a GM, DK. I'm red. I have begged an unnamed GM of a world team tennis roster to let me make some trades. Cause I literally was like, trust me, this is what I do. Um, anyways, we'll leave that there on the side folks. That's where things stand after the first third. Uh, we gave you two and a half hours. Hopefully you feel up to date on everything that's happened now in 2023 on the WTA and ATP tours. Of course, again, we will be back later today to talk about this week's tour level events. But before I let you go, DK, any final thoughts? On what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did From we the last three out? hours. Did we leave anything? No, I feel like this was quite exhaustive. I'm just, I'm struggling to think. I mean, like I said, like I have been saying, this was a really narratively satisfying start to the season. And I feel like since I've been writing about tennis, it hasn't been like this. I feel like there's always something amiss. And we're kind of starting to see the pieces finally fall into the puzzle a little bit uh, more cleanly than I'm used to. And there's less, like I said, less less to explain and more to sort of just marvel at, which I think if you're an ATP writer for the last decade and a half, you've just kind of gotten to marvel. <laughs> Some of us have been in the trenches, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to enjoy <laughs> what we've seen on the tour for the last couple months. Yeah, I, I, very well said. I, I mean, again, when I look back at this first third of the season, clarity. That's the word that comes to mind. It does feel like we have a little bit more clarity of where things stand, who are the names we need to watch most closely. But, of course, the best part about the professional tennis world is it always offers up something new. And that new wrinkle into the mix is, of course, a changing of the surface. As we go from hard court to clay, how will that impact all of these players? I am certain we'll have David Kane on the show to discuss over the course of the next few months. And, of course, you guys can read everything David Kane writes, tennis.com, over on Baseline, as well as shout-out to him for for the work he does day in, day out. A shout out, of course, as well to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of a job to do, DK? Oh, he does a f***ing editing job. Yes, he does. That Westoff, like no other. Yeah, day in, day out, make it everything possible here at CR. Of course, we've got GSPs, Challenger Tennis, College Tennis World covering all things there. We've got cracked interviews with players, coaches, you name it. We talk to them, of course. All that content available over on our website, crackrackets.com. A shout-out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point for their support of this show, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic tennis.com editorial producer, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends over at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? That's been three hours of the break. (laughs) Very many. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Go Svidania.